Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I am Peter Spiegel. And on today's show, we are going to begin with an individual I really have been looking forward to speaking with. I think you will like to hear what he says also. His name is Josh Bach. He serves as Vice President of Farm Animal Protection at the Humane Society of the United States. And uh, he is with us now from San Francisco. Hey, Josh. Hey, Peter. It's good to be on. Thank you for having me. Okay. It's great. Great speaking with you. So I thought it would be interesting to just start by hearing uh, what you're doing right now at the Humane Society. Like, what is this position of Vice President of Farm Animal Protection entail? And, and uh, then maybe we can go back in time a little bit. What are you up to now? Uh, that, that, that sounds good. Well, right now we are waging a full frontal campaign to abolish factory farming. And, and here's how we're doing it. Uh, we are waging legislative campaigns across the country to ban the confinement of egg laying hens, mother pigs, and baby veal calves in cages. In fact, uh, in about a dozen states, we have banned all or some of those practices, including the sale of eggs, pork, and veal from caged animals in numerous states. So we've led the charge in passing the strongest laws for farm animals in the world. We also work with the largest food corporations to enact animal welfare policies that ban these practices, uh, such as cage-free policies from places like McDonald's, Walmart, Costco, you name it. And finally, the, the last part has to do with us working with the food service industry, the industry that runs the dining operations at colleges, universities, hospitals, to add more plant-based options to their menus. We have a, a renowned group of culinarians, registered dietitians, and food service experts that change these menus so that by the end of 2024, half of all offerings will be plant-based. That's the trajectory we're on. And in doing this holistic approach, we think we're gonna help a whole lot of animals. Wow. Okay. So, so many things to explore just in that brief uh, summary. For instance, the uh, legislative and uh, the lobbying efforts. Uh, do you have a background in lobbying? How do you get into that? And, or how do you develop the skill set to, to work in that uh, crazy environment? You know, you just go out there and do it. You know, it's, it's really something. You know, when you look at laws being passed, sometimes you think, all right, you have to be some big shot, high powered lobbyist. Uh, or you have to be part of some industry to push a bill forward. But in reality, you don't. You have to just go out there and give things a shot. And so what we have done especially is use what's called the ballot measure process. And that is 23 states across the country allow citizens to collect signatures on a government-issued petition. If you collect enough signatures, you can put a question on the ballot. So when people go out and vote, on president or governor or senator or congressperson, your question or your organization's question is on the ballot as well. And what we've done, including in your state where you're at right now in California, we've got a ballot measure filed in 2018 to ban the confinement of these farm animals I listed earlier in cages and ban the sale of eggs, pork, and veal from caged animals. We got on the ballot in 2018. We had a year long campaign against big agribusiness interests for a year's trade. Uh, and on election day, uh, the animals, uh, not their abusers, prevailed. We got nearly two thirds of the vote. And that's how we went out and passed the law. So, you know, you just, sometimes you've got to give things a shot. Uh, and uh, more times than not for the farm animals, we've been pretty successful and that's why we're moving in a good direction. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about working uh, with corporations and working with uh, big agriculture to uh, gradually change their practices or at least their mindsets or at least what they're saying. Are they engaged? Is, are we really seeing an evolution or a revolution in uh, where our food comes from related to animal welfare? We are, uh, and I think it has less to do with agribusiness changing its mind on how animals ought to be treated. It has more to do, frankly, with victories, campaign victories. You know, we strongly feel that the most efficient way to help as many animals as possible is to align where animals all feel, where people feel animals ought to be treated in terms of they feel like animals be treated well on small family farms. They should not be confined in cages. The public feels that way, but right now they're not. So how do we align them? And what we've done is wage campaigns with these large food corporations, basically saying like, listen, in your supply chain right now are practices that the public does not agree with. And we're gonna call you out on it, or we're gonna file shareholder resolutions about it, or we're gonna be wage public campaigns about it, unless you change. Uh, and the good news is, is that the companies agree that wait a second, we don't wanna tell the public, yes, we have chickens in cages. Yes, we have mother pigs and veal calves in cages within our supply chain. So, okay, Humane Society of the United States, we will work with you and we will announce publicly that we're going to commit to eliminating these practices in our supply chains. And hey, what does that look like? It means that if you're an egg supplier or pork supplier or veal supplier, you get told by the grocery store or fast food chain or restaurant chain that they're no longer do business with you if you continue to cage animals and you don't go cage-free. So that's how we can efficiently cause massive change for literally hundreds of millions of animals per year. And the uh, fur industry, as an example, they have really been decimated. Uh, that's a good model. It is a good model, and I think it's a, it's a great example. And, you know, it's rather than trying to go to one person at a time, like imagine trying to go to one person at a time, all 340 million Americans, and say, please, Stop buying eggs from caged chickens or pork from caged pigs. I mean, that would be an impossible task. Instead, if you want to have a big impact, how about the largest buyers of those products, the corporations, once they mandate a change, that's when suppliers start changing. And that's is exactly what happened with the fur industry. Is The reason why the Humane Society of the United States has been so successful taking on of that horrific industry that is just filled with torture and pain is that rather than trying to persuade one person at a time to stop buying fur, we instead, we each campaigns and got the fur sellers out there in the country to stop selling fur to begin with. And we also have passed laws like in California banning the sale of fur completely. So you're right, that's an apt comparison. Uh, and you know, we've a, we believe in a fierce urgency of now. If we want to help as many animals as possible now, then we have to think as big as possible and practical as possible and passing laws and waging corporate campaigns is the way to go. Okay, so in my mind, and prob probably yours, uh, that means not stopping with making these animals' lives uh, you know, a little bit less uh, terrible and then killing them, but just getting away from consuming animals altogether. Uh, how focused is the Humane Society? Are you personally on that? Well, uh, on my end, I've been vegan for about 20 years. Uh, and, you know, I was raised probably like most of your listeners eating meat probably every single day. 
Uh, and, you know, for me, my goal is to help as many animals as possible. And one way of doing it is to abolish the worst practices in factory farming to vastly increase the treatment uh, of these animals who otherwise would be caged. As an example, cage-free chickens, while not living in utopia, they're least able to live in a cage-free housing system where they're able to perch, scratch, dust bathe, lay eggs in a nest, run around. These are critical behaviors they can do in a cage-free system. Again, not perfect, but a much better life. Simultaneously, you're right. We also want to reduce the number of animals who are raised and killed to begin with. And the efficient way of doing it is to work with the food service companies and, and rather than trying to do one, get one person at a time to make changes and with the food service companies that operate the dining centers at more than 10,000 locations for a given company, 10,000 locations, imagine shifting their menus from five, 10% plant-based to 50% plant-based. You know, as one microcosm is that we work with Sodexo, it's the world's second largest food service company. And we're working with them to uh, trailblaze you know, a plant-based being the, the, the forefront of their menus. So they did a test of it. Hey, does this plan work to shift our menus to focus on plants? So they said, okay, try it at Creighton University. Uh, it's a university in Nebraska that has no plant-based entrees at all. So we said, hey, we'll give it a shot. So we got our culinarians on board. We created amazing plant-based meals that are meant for everyone to enjoy, not just vegans like myself, everyone to enjoy, including most ardent meat eaters who are on campus. They went from zero percent plant-based offerings to 20% of their offerings being plant-based. And you know what happened? Nearly half of all purchasing on campus shifted to plant-based meals. That's for an entire campus, not just one person, an entire campus. That's a microcosm of the impact that we can make using this type of strategy. We're having this discussion uh, during this uh, COVID pandemic. And so uh, a lot of the campuses are not going to be uh, in person this uh, season. Is this going to interfere with your efforts? Or maybe, uh, maybe the efforts are strengthened because everyone's online all the time. You know what? We have found that universities, uh, colleges, and especially hospitals are more open to this than ever before because they're beginning to make a link that you have been talking about for a long time. It's not just the treatment of animals that should be a concern when it comes to producing meat, eggs, and dairy. Also, there is a concern related to climate change, uh, health, also zoonotic disease. You know, zoonotic disease comes from animals. Uh, and that's where COVID came from, from, from wild animals, but it didn't just affect you know, our viewpoint of wild animals. Our meat supply chain in the United States got completely disrupted because of so many people getting COVID-19 in slaughterhouses. Slaughterhouses were shut down and slowed. That led to backups in factory farms of animals who typically would have gone to slaughter. And there were shelves that were barren of meat. There were restaurants that couldn't sell beef at a certain time. And so food companies are now starting to see, wait a second, there's just a real problem with selling these products. There must be a better way. And that's why plant-based is more top of mind now than ever before. And you know what? Yes, there are campuses that are not going back because of COVID-19 at this point, but hospitals are, are still running. Um, K-12 schools are still feeding students. Uh, prisons and military bases are still feeding people. And you know what? Colleges, when they do come back, and they will come back, they'll come back with a better menu because of yeah. our work, a menu focused on plants. 
We are speaking with Josh Bach from the Humane Society of the United States, where he serves as vice president of Farm Animal Protection. And after the break, we're going to continue this discussion and maybe uh, learn about how Josh Bach ended up where he is today. You are listening to Animals Today. for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 12th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Josh Bach from Humane Society of the United States. Josh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you came from in the early days and uh, how you ended up in this position. I think most of it comes down to a dog named Hector. Uh, Hector was a, a giant St. Bernard. Uh, oh. you know, growing up, you know, when you're a little kid, St. Bernards look like they're the size of a bear. <laughs> and, and, you know, Hector was massive, but he also wasn't that friendly to me and my brother. I mean, every day he would growl at he will growl at me and it was almost as if you know I was like a stranger to him I'm like Hector it's me you see me every single day it didn't matter he didn't really like me very much that being said I loved him you know when you're a little kid you just love your dog uh, and I remember like Hector becoming like the first animal who I loved yeah. and I w- watched a, a documentary you know later in life uh, and it was about what included animals who were being raised and killed for food Hector came over as I was watching and he put his giant head over on my foot. And that was the only sign of affection he'd ever shown me. And I just made that connection that, that, that you and Lauren, I'm sure so many other people have made, which is why do I love my dog so much while simultaneously ignoring the suffering of these farm animals? You know, these farm animals want to experience joy and happiness just like Hector does. You know, they don't want to suffer and feel pain just like Hector doesn't want to either. Like, why ignore them? And so that moment really changed my life. It changed my diet. I uh, became vegetarian, now later vegan. Um, but it also just opened my eyes to a hidden world of animals who needed help. And so all credit to, to Hector, who is now in dog heaven looking down, and I hope I'm making him proud. Okay, and then eventually you ended up with uh, the group at the time was called Compassion Over Killing Now Animal Outlook. How did you, how did you get with them, and what did you do with them? I started interning with them uh, when I was in college. Now, I used to uh, have a van that I would drive around. This is pre-YouTube days. Uh, this is pre-everyone like everyone really having internet. Uh, and, and this van, I, I would park it in a busy place in D.C., open the side door, and have a big TV come out, show factory farm footage, and to give out leaflets next to it. And that was yeah, the I way remember, to let people I see. That. I remember that van. Uh, old school. That's old school, Pierre. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I got started. When I eventually started working at the organization, I did a lot of uh, roles, including undercover investigators. So as an example, I worked undercover at a chicken slaughterhouse. 
Uh, and what I did was work in the shackling room. So that's where chickens are, are dumped on a conveyor belt. The conveyor belt brings them to you. You grab chickens by the legs, lift them up upside down, and you shackle them. Uh, I did that to expose the inherent cruelty that these poor animals are forced to endure. Uh, at the same time, you know, it was a nightmare to see in person and not only see, take part of. You know, these animals, these are chickens who are genetically manipulated to grow so big, so fast. By the end of their brief life, they can't even walk. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're crippled. Uh, and, you know, you just feel the total helplessness of these poor animals. And I remember shackling them thinking like, what did they ever do to deserve this? I mean, what, did they commit some crime? You know, did they commit some harm to others? Like, what did they do? They didn't do anything at all to deserve this fate that was forced upon them. It, it broke my heart. Uh, and it also did something to my mind. It made me realize that this isn't about philosophy or theory. We have to be practical to help them because real lives are at stake. And I witnessed it myself in the slaughterhouse, and, and that's a constant reminder to me to this day. We have a lot of uh, listeners who are a little bit younger than you are, maybe uh, figuring out where they want to be in the world of advocating for animals. How tough is it to get a paying job in this uh, industry? You know, it, it is, uh, it's a bit challenging. Uh, in, in, in some ways, it's a, for a good reason, is that more people uh, than I'm aware of ever before want to work to help animals. And that's a good thing. Uh, how I started is how I'd recommend anyone get started. I started by volunteering, uh, volunteering specifically on some type of campaign yeah. that I interned. Uh, and the reason why I recommend volunteering and interning is that you can really show your worth. You know, any day of the week, twice on Sundays, I'd hire someone who was an amazing volunteer, a wonderful intern over someone who was a valedictorian at some Ivy League school. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, and also you, you get to get involved in real life activities. It's not just like reading a book about it or seeing a documentary. It's like, no, you were in the mix. You're on the front lines. You're out there waging the good fight. And so that's what I would recommend people doing. Uh, and I can't tell you how many people, even on my own team, got started uh, by a, being a volunteer uh, and an intern. And, and you know what? Not only will it help you land, I think, a job sometime in the future, you're going to feel really good about your day-to-day -day work to help you. Yeah. Okay, so you worked undercover. I don't know whether that was uh, legal or technically legal. It was legal. Not. It was legal. It okay. was. What, yep. do you think, what do you think about folks who advocate breaking the law, like destroying laboratories or releasing animals? Evidently, now you can even be cited for giving water to animals on the truck on the way to a slaughterhouse. In terms of uh, breaking things and destroying property, it's not something that, that I would recommend at all. Uh, I think that, you know, we always, the animals are the victims. They are the victims in the suffering. Anytime that something is done that makes the abuser appear to the public as the victim, I think flips things in the wrong direction that we'd want. What I think we should continue to do is make it crystal clear to the public, hey, you care about animals, excellent. Well, here's what's happening to animals in a factory farm. Uh, here's what happens to animals in a slaughterhouse. 
there's no way when you look at this, you think this is okay. All right, we're on that same plane. Now, what do we do together to make things better? That's, in my view, a lot more effective way to cause change uh, than, than, than an alternative path. Josh, we just have a little bit of time left. Why don't you recommend for our maybe younger listeners a, a book or a film or a blog or something you uh, would like to put out there as uh, something that can teach them something or help them learn about where they're going to fit in this uh, effort? You know, it's, you know, I'm just thinking about John Lewis, uh, who's a civil rights uh, hero who just recently yeah. passed away. Um, yeah. And I would recommend uh, reading about John Lewis, uh, watching, there are several documentaries about John Lewis, just, just watching documentary about John Lewis. Whenever we get scared to wage a campaign, a legislative campaign, a corporate campaign, it is never going to be as scary as what John Lewis went through. When he could have lost his life more times than I'm sure he could have counted by the activities that he was doing simply by marching. And so with that, hey, let's go out there, let's wage campaigns, let's fight for the animals. Uh, That's what they need. Uh, And I think uh, John Lewis can, can inspire us all to do that. Josh Bach, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Next time you come on, and I hope you will, uh, I'd like to speak about some specific campaigns, or maybe you can let me know when something really hot is going on, and we'll uh, try to engage folks in that. I'd love to be back. Thank you for having me on, Peter. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. Stick around. More of the show after this break. Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters and they have a special gland located above their nasal passages which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic, and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird, and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. 
The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. There's an organization I really want you to get to know called Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals International, or SPCA International. And to do this, we have its executive director with us, Meredith Ann. Welcome to the program, Meredith. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me. Meredith, why don't you give us a brief overview of what SPCA International is? So SPCA International has uh, a few different programs, our Shelter Support Fund, which supports shelters and animal welfare organizations in the U.S. and all over the world through direct grants. And we also have within that program emergency and disaster relief grants available to our partners as well. So if they're experiencing a natural disaster or even an emergency with a, a large intake of animals, they can apply for help through that program. Also, we help uh, animal welfare organizations over the world with a program that we call veterinary supply aid. And we send shipments of um, sterile surgical supplies, sutures, medications, anything that is needed to perform veterinary services in a hospital. So that's the way that we help uh, shelters and animal welfare groups directly. And then we have an education program. And then we have a, a branch of our organization that is dedicated to helping the U.S. military, and we do that a couple of different ways. The first is a program called Operation Military Pets, where we provide grants to families who are on PCS orders, which change, which stands for Permanent Change of Station. So if they're being stationed internationally with their family, the military does not cover the cost for them to move their pets. The family unit includes not just the humans in the households, but the pets, so that that family can stay together. So we help some the cost of moving those pets. And then we have a program called Operation Baghdad Pups Worldwide that was founded in 2008 because one soldier reached out to us. Uh, he wanted to bring his dog back. He was on active duty in Baghdad during the Iraq War. And he had befriended a puppy named Charlie. And he desperately wanted to get Charlie home because he knew what would happen to him if he if he stayed there. And so we we started this program, you know, with with this sort of organic request for one soldier, one dog, and now it has blossomed 12 years later into a program that we have expanded, not just in the Middle East, but all over the world to help soldiers on active duty um, who are deployed in, in war zones, uh, who have befriended an animal, get those animals home to the U.S. We have been rescuing dogs and cats from all over the world since 2008. At this point, we are at almost 1,100 animals. That includes puppies, kittens, even one donkey that we rescued for a marine unit. Wow, that's wonderful. So where do the animals go? How do they get transported? Tell us how, how the process works. 
so at the very start of the process, uh, you know, we, we have an application. It's a lot of word of mouth. It's a lot of, um, you know, Googling uh, how, to, how to get an animal home from the Middle East or wherever, whatever country uh, or area of the world um, this member of the military might be stationed in. And often they'll find our organization and our Operation Baghdad Pups Worldwide Program. Uh, and from, that's when, when the work begins. So uh, depending on the urgency and the need to get that animal out of where they are in the world, some are in safer locations than others, then we figure out, you know, how are we going to transport them to a safe place? Is it going to be, you know, a kennel? We have a lot of wonderful partner organizations who will step up and help us um, house the animals. And then we have to get them vaccinated. They need their rabies vaccinations. They need full health workups. They need to be declared healthy enough to travel to the U.S. And then eventually they are reunited if the, if the soldier is home. So great because you know, the, that animal gets to see them right when they get off the plane here in the U.S., but oftentimes they're not home yet. So a family member or friend or foster will step in and uh, and take care of the animal until the, uh, the service person is home for good. So, you know, imagine being deployed on active duty. You're away from your family. You're away from your friends. You're away from everything that you know. You're often in these extremely stressful situations. And um, you may be in a country where, you know, the the stray animal population is uh, more populous around bases. They're they're coming to these bases because there's food, there's water. And, you know, the, the lovely uh, members of the military who are missing their families and their pets at home. You know, you're seeing a puppy or a kitten and you're, you get to spend some time with them and it takes you out of that situation that you're in for a little while. It gives you a little bit of a sense of normalcy. You bond with that animal and then they couldn't picture leaving that animal behind after mm. forming that bond to them and thinking, you know, they're not going to have food. They're not going to have water. You know, they're going to be subjected to a life on the streets. Some environments can be very hostile to these animals. Sometimes they'll be found with a wound or they're often unvaccinated. So, you know, we know that communicable diseases can be rampant. So, you know, sometimes they come to us in not the best condition. And so SPCA International will work to get them healthy, make sure they're extremely healthy before they fly. We also work on getting them socialized. They get basic leash training. They learn how to sit. They learn how to be comfortable in their crates. And they they learn how to interact with people and other animals. And we found that that is just, you know, setting them up for behavioral success in the U.S. as well. There's a lot that goes into it. And uh, we feel that it's really the least we can do for these brave men and women serving our country. And, and it's an honor for us to be able to provide this service to them. Meredith, are soldiers discouraged from adopting these animals? Are animals allowed on the base? This is all prohibited by the military for active duty soldiers to interact with an animal on base is, is actually prohibited. And oh. so it, depending on, you know, sort of the leniency of, of that particular base, you know, they can be you know, be welcome onto the base, um, you know, but oftentimes it could be a situation where maybe they're being hidden in a room or, um, you know, they're being kept in a safe space, a little bit of a distance away. So every situation is completely different, but, you know, they're forming that bond and, you know, they just care for these animals so much that yeah. they're willing to risk breaking the rules in order to bring them home to the U.S. How expensive is it to run this program and where do the funds come from? 
it is very expensive <laughs> to run this program because it's not just as simple as getting an animal from point A to point B. We really pride ourselves on giving these animals the best quality care while they are in our care. And especially with COVID, the global air travel has really come to a halt. So that has added um, a lot of expense to our program as well. And we rely 100% on the generosity of our donors to operate this program. Meredith, briefly tell us about your latest mission of rescuing 47 dogs and cats from Iraq for U.S. military service members and contractors. Yes. So we recently brought 47 animals home. As I mentioned, COVID-19, um, you know, completely shut down operations beginning in March. So we were able to work with a company that provided a plane to us and we were able to fly 47 animals. 31 of them were part of our Operation Baghdad Pups Worldwide program and 16 belonged to another organization called Puppy Rescue Mission that uh, has a similar program to ours. So the two organizations came together to make this happen. The plane left from Iraq, went through Shannon, Ireland for a refueling stop and arrived to JFK at two o'clock in the morning a couple of weeks ago. And my entire New York staff was there. We all breathed a sigh of relief once the plane landed. I got goosebumps. I mm. have said no matter how many times I do this, I'll cry every time because we just felt such a sense of relief that even during a global pandemic, we were able to get the animals home safely and, and keep our promise um, to these service people. Helping our military families and saving the lives of animals in need. What can be better? Tell us your website. Our website is www.spcai.org. Meredith A.M., thank you very much. Thank you so much. Today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. 
A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. You know what that means, Peter, right? It's Save the Koala Month. Pop quiz. Oh, yes. Did you have any classes where your teachers would spring a pop quiz on you? Oh, my goodness. In Spanish class, in like in eighth grade, it was just a nightmare. And you know what? Wait, wait. They would say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Okay, no questions. Okay, pop quiz. You must all know the material, right? I hate when they did that. Were you prepared? It was just terror. It was just not fair. That that sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, I had a math teacher that would give us a pop quiz once a week, but we wouldn't know which day of the week it would be, so we would just always have to be prepared. That's terrible. That's what gives you ulcers. (laughs) Okay, so koalas. Okay. True or false? Koala bears are a type of bear. I don't think they're bears. That's correct. It is false. They are not bears, and they are not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears. Mm-hmm. True or false, koalas are marsupial mammals. That's true. Marsupial meaning they carry their babies in pouches like kangaroos and opossums. A newborn koala baby is called what? A joey. Very good. Yes. This little joey is less than an inch in length, lives in the mother's pouch for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develop, and then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, she or he is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Fully grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Peter, koalas have litters of babies like Dogs and cats, true or false? I'm going to say, let's see. I'm going to say, yes, more than one. False. Ah. One baby at a time. Mm. Koalas live in packs, true or false? No, no. I'm going to say no, false. They prefer to live alone. That's right. Koalas spend most of their lives in trees. The only food koalas eat are eucalyptus leaves, fruit and nuts, insects and rodents. Oh, I believe those eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, is that? Am I saying that right? Eucalyptus leaves. That's correct. The only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestion process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for a specific variety by adulthood. And koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees, and they need lots of trees and lots of space to keep them happy and healthy. Other than in zoos, koalas are only found where? I'm going to say Australia. 
correct. The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population has dropped by 90 percent in less than a decade. So they are definitely threatened. Their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat. I read 80 percent of their habitat has been destroyed. So we're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees. Mm. Very sad. Yes, I've heard this story before, you know, habitat loss. Yes, many times. Yeah. Okay. So What's my score on oh, this pop quiz? You got 50% right. What would that be in, in a math class? Like a C minus? In most colleges, that would be uh, A minus. 50% equals A minus these days. Right. Well, you certainly weren't prepared. Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. What's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypti? Eucalyptuses? Mm. 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 What do you have there, Peter? Lori, I have a little study from the Pew Research Center that has to do with the views of various groups of people about how they feel about animals and scientific research. Very interesting topic to our listeners. Yes. Overall, among U.S. adults, 52% oppose the use of animals in scientific research and 47% favor it. Wow, I'm surprised that about half of the adult population is in favor of experimentation with animals. I don't know if I'm surprised by that or not, but I'll tell you there is also a wide gender gap. Among men, 58% approve, and among women, Overall, 36% approve. Right, because we're more sensitive and compassionate and smarter. They also split it out among those with various degrees of science knowledge. They've got this little test. And uh, among those with high scientific knowledge, 63% approve. Wow. Among those with medium scientific knowledge, 44% approve. And among those with low scientific knowledge, 37% approve. Well, that doesn't make sense to me because scientifically knowledgeable people ought to know the limitations of animal research and how it's not applicable in many cases to humans. Oh, and I've got one more element of this in case you were wondering if there's a partisan difference in the survey results. And the answer is no. Whether you're Republican or Independent or Democrat, the results stay about the same. Interesting. Yep. Peter, there's an animal shelter in a very small town in Arkansas doing something very cute to boost their adoptions. So the way most shelters or foster care individuals market adoptable animals on Facebook is by simply putting up a picture and description of the dog or cat, right? Well, one of the workers at the shelter thought it would be a good idea to put live video on Facebook with him and the dog dressed up in matching costumes. And the costumes range from superheroes to well-known pop stars. And I will tell you, these are not only generating a lot of attention, but according to this guy who is appearing on the videos, nine out of 10 times the animal on the video is adopted or a rescue group comes in and gets the animal out of there. More than 33,000 people like the shelter's Facebook page, which is more than the population of West Memphis, which is the name of the city in Arkansas. So the video I saw, he was dressed up like Prince 
Princess Leia and the dog is Yoda, and another one where he's dressed up as Batman and the dog is Supergirl. And the guy sings or just does some cute little performance as he's standing there holding the dog or standing with the dog, and it sure seems to be working. That's really great, Lori. Please don't volunteer me, though. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.